Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 77th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that will leave a better legacy in your spec box. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product, with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, looking forward to another great episode. Glad to be here. A little, uh, little drained after GP Toronto yesterday. It was a long day for both of us, but uh, we got a lot of good stuff. Um, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, Travis, what's on the agenda this week? Well, James, this week we have a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers, where we will talk about the cards that have seen the largest price increases over the past week. Segment two is our cards to watch, where we will talk about uh, cards that you and I think have a chance of rising in price. Segment three is our metagame week in review. We'll touch briefly on the standard open from last weekend. Um, Both GPs that are running right now are limited, so not a lot to cover there. And segment four, our topic of the week is all sorts of things to talk about with the organized play changes and the FNM promos, the Grand Prix schedule, um, the team GP, the team Pro Tour, right? Team Pro Tour, Legacy Pro Tour, Underground C. So there's a lot, lot in there to unpack this week. So let's start out. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to. Uh, touch a little bit on GP Toronto since it was our first time ever getting to hang out together in person. Oh yeah, we can talk about that too. All sorts to cover. Um, so, so it was a uh, a little amusing to me that despite us uh, spending like a day and a half on the show floor combined, um, neither of us played in any events. No, I brought several EDH decks with the intention of playing EDH. I kind of figured I would have several hours free at some point, but. Um, I'm vendoring always takes longer than I expect it to uh, sitting down with people, especially a little later on Saturday. Those guys are starting to get a little, a little tired themselves and aren't moving very quickly. But, yeah. Yeah. I, I had, I fully intended to play in the frontier quote unquote championships that went down on Friday afternoon. Um, I think it started at noon, but, uh, and I think it was like, it was really good EV in that tournament. I think it was like two and a half K in prizes for like 40 people. Um, wow. So pretty sweet uh very tempting and yet the there was a few more vendors than i was expecting i think there was like 10 vendor booths at gp toronto and there was just so much mtg finance hunt hunting action to be done at these booths um i just i couldn't get away from them uh to go play in any events on friday and then by the time you showed up we kind of dithered around we went out and had a nice lunch and walked around Toronto a bit, and by the time we got back and did a little socializing, and and you did a little business at one of the vendor tables, we were kind of kind of drained, and we were looking at needing to get out to a dinner that we had booked. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, I did not finish up what I was working on until you know my various activities until like after nine o'clock. I mean, really ran it to the end there. Um, yeah, it just goes to show, you know, it's not hard to find all sorts of things to do and enjoy 
uh at grand prix if you even if you have no intention of playing magic whatsoever can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you were doing at the vendor booth uh well i just bought a collection from a friend um so i uh, had organized all the rares and um basically i went through and i took all the rares that were worth that buy listed for about four dollars and up and kept those for myself because those are uh, those are about where i drew the line as being worthwhile to sell myself like on tcg player but everything that buy listed for less than four dollars but more than a quarter um because everything like a quarter and under i'm just going to shove in my bulk rare box and hope to get lucky everything that kind of falls in that buy list of 50 cents to you know four dollars i brought with me in an ogre box and was just trying to dump all of that stuff because uh, it's worth a worth some money for sure when you pile it all together um but too low effort to sell too low ball to bother selling myself um so just trying to turn through that i think i sold like half to three quarters of it it was really funky because all the vendors were paying canadian so it was uh i don't know not not ideal so can you do share with the listeners what an ogre box is yeah 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 uh, i know that some of our listeners you know if you if you listen to some of the other content out there you probably heard it but not everybody does um it's you know it's funny you mentioned that I I have gotten used to hearing the term so I don't think much about it but even a lot of the vendors I think uh, aren't familiar with it or at least some of their buyers that might not be there all the time but what an ogre box is you take your pile of cards so I have the stack of rares of varying buy list value and I take all of the cards that I want to get say fifty cents for and I put those in a pile and I put them in the box with a little tag in front of them that says fifty cents and then I take all the rares that I want a dollar for and put them in the box together and then a dollar fifty two dollars two fifty three dollars and then I sit down at the dealer booth and I say okay here's my box everything here I want you know I will take fifty cents on everything here I'll take a dollar on so instead of the dealer going through picking up a card putting it on the go, I'll give you this much for this, I'll give you this much for this, looking a ton of cards up. They just scroll through all the cards I have and then just pull out everything that they're willing to buy at the price I've asked for. Um, you can usually squeeze a little bit out of them too. You know, if there's a card that typically buy lists for like 40 cents and you've got it in your 50 cent section, they'll probably take it. You know, if it's a 90 cent card, you can you can get a dollar for it, that type of thing. So it kind of lets you round up a little bit on the margins and it's better for, and it's fine for the vendors because they can go really quickly, um, which is really Really what they're looking for is volume they're not interested in haggling over nickels um as some of our peers are uh so in general it just kind of expedites the process for everybody involved gotcha so you're basically like taking instead of just bringing people a random pile of cards you're organizing by their approximate price tag and able to present kind of a you know a very um succinct offer to a buyer that they can process much faster, gets you in and out of that situation quicker and lets you keep moving around the floor. Correct. Here are all, here are all the cards I have to sell and I want this much for each exact card. And then either you will pay me that number or you won't. So you can burn through. And if, you know, generally it takes a couple vendors to get through your whole box. Um, you know, if one guy takes all of your cards, you price them too low because uh, there's a wide disparity in what some vendors will give you for your cards. You know, I had dealers laugh at me asking like $3 for one card. And they're like, oh, we pay quarters on this. And then a booth over, they paid $3 on them without questioning. So, um, you know, you sh- it should take you several vendors to mostly empty a box. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and I'll maybe share a little bit of what I was up to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know I, you bought some cool stuff. I mean, one of the things, I think the maybe not so obvious or obvious tips uh, for users, if they're, you know, listeners, if they're heading into one of these major events, 
um, is get there bright and early on the very first day. Um, if you're looking, if you want to go hunting in cases and hunting in binders, looking for deals, um, cards you think that are about to pop or have recently popped, then you want to be first on the floor and you want to have cash at the ready. So I showed up on Friday morning with like $2,000 ready to go and a little bag and basically did a quick run through of the floor looking for the most obvious opportunities and then did second, third, and fourth passes after I'd kind of uh, managed to load up on as much as I could of my primary spec targets. Um, this weekend in particular, I was looking for uh, Horizon Canopy Expeditions because there were signals as of Thursday night that it was essentially going to be one of the first expeditions in a long time to show some serious price movement. Uh, Horizon Canopy has been showing up uh, in uh, in greater profusion in modern lists uh, where they used to run just like one or two copies. Some lists are now running three or four. And there really weren't that many around as of last week. And somebody took a stab at them on TCG and, and uh, you know, the domino started to tumble. On the floor, I was able to source uh, 11 copies total at 105 US or so. Um, and they've now spiked to 200. So that already felt like a solid move. Then I moved on to Extra Planar Lens uh, Masterpieces, which is a card that's been talked about by Jason Alt and other people for, you know, well over a month is something that probably is going to see, you know, much more modest demand overall than Soul Ring. Like, I don't think I'm going to be able to burn through uh, the 20 or so copies I picked up on the floor under 30 US um, in a month or two. I think it's probably going to take more like a year to 18 months to unload all of them, you know, maybe one or two a month. But I think that the card probably settles in the 50, 50 to $60 range, which is st- still close enough to a double up to be happy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think Extra, extra Planar Lens has been on my list personally for a while. I haven't managed to grab any of them, or I should say I haven't managed to grab as many as I wanted. Um, but I do think it was a, it was a really good choice. Um, you know, they were available at around $30. And, uh, you know, their, their EDH demand profile isn't huge, but I always felt like it should be higher than it was. Um, that doesn't mean anything just because I think that people should want it more than they do. Uh, but yeah, I think that was a, a good way to go because it's just so cheap. Like the ones that are really cheap, like I shouldn't say all of them, but most of the ones that are still that are reasonably cheap were just you're guaranteed to get there, like in Staring Bridge, Planar Portal, those types of things. Some of the other ones less so like Grindstone is just not ever really ever going to be valuable because nobody really needs that card. Um, but anything that you can basically play in EDH is, is going to get there eventually. Yeah. I mean, the rest of my action was was largely about going through the like the vendors that largely were like regional vendors, like vendors from smaller markets, mid-sized towns uh, in Ontario and Quebec here in Canada that, um, you know, probably have a much softer EDH demand profile. And so these guys are carrying around binders of like $1, $2, $3, $4 cards, uh, you know, all the way up to 10 or 15, sometimes 20. And you can spin through these binders pretty quick. And if you've got, if you've been paying attention to what's popped lately, um, or you know, you're on top of some forthcoming trends, uh, you know, by digesting MTG Finance content, you'll be aware of you know cards like Captain Sisse that have languished in binders for years. But now, if Planeswalkers are suddenly going to have the legendary, uh, legendary uh, permanent type as of Ixalan, um, that card gets a lot more exciting in EDH. So. Managed to pick up maybe something like seven or eight hundred dollars worth of EDH foils that um, I think I paid something like three fifty for. Um, looking to slow burn those out through eBay and Facebook groups and so forth over the next course of the next year or so. Uh, 
Uh, and then last night we sat down with uh, the legendary Corbin Hostler of Brainstorm Brewery and Magic Coverage fame uh, at a Brazilian steakhouse and then proceeded to watch him skip an entire beautiful salad bar, pick out six grapes, and then devour a immense amount of steak product. Uh, yeah, he was pretty, uh, he was kind of pissy that he did not get as much as he wanted either. He was like, <laughs> he ate a lot, he ate a lot and was continued to tell, complain that it was not enough. It's like, they're not coming over anymore. I'm like, Corbin, they've given you like up two pounds worth of meat at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think next time you have to make sure we show up uh, a little sooner before closing so that he can get like some kind of rotating spit of skewers, like a conveyor belt that's coming in and out of the table. Yeah, just, you know, put the end of the skewer in my mouth and push it down into me, shove it into my throat. Yeah, he was, it was a good time. We, uh, we everybody had a good time. It was a lot of fun to get out together. I, I was just impressed that we managed to get him to concede that it, the place was better than Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> was, well, yeah, I mean, you know, he, he actually didn't say that. He said that it was, it tasted better. Uh, I think, or like he enjoyed eating it more, basically. But like the value, the value uh, formula, I don't think was on our side last night. Although it was cheaper than I thought it was going to be. It was only like forty three American, um, which you know, for you go out to a, a, a decent meal. If you go to out to dinner for at some place that isn't a chain restaurant, you're paying well over twenty dollars a plate, anyways. Um, so for the volume, and you know, if you get an appetizer, you're now you're easily thirty. So for the cost, I, I thought it was pretty reasonable i think you have to factor in at least five dollars for the dancing girls and the silks performance that went down in the in the main foyer yeah uh, someone might i don't know if i would attribute five dollars worth of value to that but it was uh, it was amusing to see at the very least i texted a photo to my fiance and she's like oh you're back in vegas again i see <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's move on to the top movers we got a huge list this week that we'll try to blow through as quickly as we can uh, starting things off, we got Jeralf's Messenger from uh, Dark Ascension moving from $5 to $10. Um, there is a black-white Solemnity deck in Modern uh, that takes advantage of a lot of these cards that pop back out of the graveyard and have excellent effects um, if their counters cannot be applied. Yep. Uh, yeah, it was this. It was Kitchen Finks. Uh, it was basically like the, the Abzan Company deck, except it passed over like Anafenza um and instead included Gralf's messenger and solemnity basically because this is actually the first time that any of these combo pieces have worked with undying um all you know the these one one counter combo decks have all worked with persist only so a little different uh next up is winds of change this has been in fifth edition sixth edition uh like revised legends chronicle i know it's printed 80 million times um it's basically something resembling a windfall you know discard cards draw that many such and such uh that pop because of locust god we have a lot of cards on the list this week for locust god i'm just actually just gonna go ahead and grab the next one so uh winds of change started at like 250 three bucks it's up towards around six dollars the next card on our list is mind moil um, from Ravnica, it's an enchantment that basically forces you to windfall, or uh, yeah, is it is it windfall? I think windfall. Every time you cast a spell, so you cast a spell, put all the cards in your hand on the bottom of your library, draw that many. Um, that jumped, the, the foils on that one jumped from 6 to 15. Um, but both of these cards are from Locust God, because every time with Locust God, you draw a card, you get an insect. So all these spells that just force you to draw tons of cards um, are, uh, are, are, are doing very well because of the Locust God. That, that was one of the foils I managed to snag on the floor for three lowly dollars. 
Yeah, I saw that, man. As soon as, you know, it's funny because as soon as coastal piracy started moving like a week or two ago, I was like, I, for whatever reason, I remembered Mind Moil. I'm like, oh, I should go look that card out because that was such a weird card. And I remember the art. And then the foils were already gone. So it was pretty jelly when I saw that $3 copy. Even the non foils are moving on this card because there's just the very little inventory. And Ravnica was quite some time ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think that there's any. I don't think you're really going to profit buying the non-foil copies of this. Uh, you know, you, if you get them at 50 cents, you know, the card might hit 250 kind of thing, like not really worth your time or effort. Um, you know, it's a buy it for yourself if you don't have one, but don't worry about trying to spec on it. <coughs> what do you uh, what's up next on our list this week, James? So one of the only standard cards on the list is Champion of Wits, moving from a dollar twenty-five to three twenty-five. Uh, this card is doing a lot of work in standard, was underestimated up front, and has made exactly the kind of price movement that I despise and consider to be irrelevant. <laughs> so uh, that would be about a dollar fifty to a little over three dollars, according to our spreadsheet here. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, th- these things were you, you know you got in maybe early at like a buck fifty each, so you got like a $6 playset, and maybe you're going to be able to sell a $10 playset. Some total after shipping in your effort, you've made like $1.50. It's just silly. Yeah, I mean, like, so I know that there's still some chatter about it right now on, on Twitter. Um, it's picking up a little bit. I guess some of the pros over in Kyoto were looking for a copy. So, you know, this might break out at the Pro Tour, in which case copies could jump up to, you know, 6 to 12 type of thing, um, in which case then you, you would have done pretty well. But, you know... That would be great for sure, but that does not happen often that you managed that you know you managed to call the exact right rare and it gets that expensive. So if you enjoy that, uh, congratulations. But it's not terribly reliable. I, I would call people's attention to the zombie cards that popped after the last pro tour, and there was a brief window of opportunity where you could sell through for reasonable profit. Um, but then say you had 30 copies and you managed to unload, you know, 14 or 16 and you're stuck with the rest and they, and they slide back down, then it chews up a bunch of that profit. It's just, it's just not where you want to be when you could have just bought one Expedition Horizon Canopy last week and, you know, avoided having to sell through 10 different play sets to make even remotely a fraction of that money. That is, uh, that is exactly the new perspective situation I found myself in. I bought them at like 60 cents or 40 cents, sold play sets at like, 15 but i only sold through some of the play sets so it's all said and done i think i made like 20 bucks and i have a stack of some new perspectives left that i didn't get through before they dropped <laughs> yeah exactly so i should actually we were talking about mine oil how we didn't think the non-foils were going to go anywhere there actually aren't any non near mint mine oils left on TCG. Yeah. so it's already i mean it's already moved i think it's going to post up shop at five or six if you were already holding them great you might have them in your binder you might have them in your bulk box uh decent opportunity if that's true Problem is I you're gonna sell you're gonna cards. sell them one at a time, right? That's the thing about some of these EDH cards that are under ten dollars. Is yeah, and I think a lot of these EDH cards that are in this rough demand profile uh, tend to settle in the like three to four dollar range for the most part. There's kind of like one ish deck that wants it, you know, or one art type, a small art type, and uh, that's the only place there's any demand for it. And there's enough copies out there that after you know a month or two, it kind of settles at just a couple dollars. One of the nice things here is that you have demand from at least Locust God and Nekosar, right? Yeah, although I don't know how many people actually play Nekosar anymore. And actually, Mindwell only hits yourself, so uh, Nekosar doesn't even care. Oh, okay. Right? So or, or is, no, maybe I'm thinking that wrong. Nekosar, ah, whatever. In any case, not many people are playing Nekosar either way. Fair. 
All right. All right. We've been talking for 20 minutes and we're three cards in, so <laughs> probably going to move along here. Next on the list, Intruder Alarm Foils going from 20 to $55. Um, Conley Woods has been championing, uh, championing the uh, an infinite variety of infinite combos in a modern brew um, on his stream. Um, hasn't really made a huge splash at the paper tables yet, um, so I think you sell into this hype if you're holding. I had a couple of copies that I picked up locally in the $25 range, slapped them onto eBay. Hopefully they'll move um, before people forget this card is a thing. Yep, agree. Um, Solemn, we got him. We'll probably see it again eventually. Next up is Frayne Sanity from Hour of Devastation. The non-foil has jumped from $1.50, $1.75, up to $5 at the moment. Uh, it's part of the mill deck that we've seen in Standard. I think we talked about Intruder Alarm last week. Frayne Sanity doubles the amount of cards that were milled this turn, essentially. Um, it's actually a, a two-card combo with Traumatize, because uh, Traumatize discards or mills half their deck, rounded up, and then Frayne Sanity just takes the other half at the end of the turn. Um, so I actually think that there's a chance you could see that pop up in Modern. I don't think it's terribly likely, but it is interesting. Um you know what that does for you but in any case at the time being it's up in the several dollar range but given that it's rare and standard and it's going to be for a niche deck uh i definitely don't think that this is a a keeper i would be shipping these as fast as i could the, the deck's not even making doesn't even have a significant pre presence in the online meta right now that doesn't give me a good feeling about it i think you want to get out of this before you get trapped yeah, now it is a mill card and we know that those are remarkably popular among casual players so it's not like it's I'm selling it now, but I could see buying back in later. This might be the type of thing where you, like, you know, you double or triple dip on it over time. A reprint of Glimpse the Unthinkable in the next year might help get more people on the deck in modern just because it would make it a cheaper, fun alternative for, like, FNM or whatever. Um, yeah. Because, you know, that's, you know, if, if Glimpse the Unthinkable is reprinted, it's like a sub $5 card, right? Um, probably. Well, yeah, probably. It depends on as long as they printed it rare, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which they have, I don't think they have any reason not to. Um, yeah. It could also show up in one of the two master sets in the next year or so. Um, I, I'm not, I don't have tremendous amount of faith in, in the mill decks. Um, they tend to take a few years to kind of catch up. But then again, people that got in on Startled uh, Awake uh, early when it was real, real cheap as a mythic um, have actually been profiting in a reasonable fashion lately. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. A burn a combo or a mill does seem like if if um glimpse unthinkables ever come down in price like a, a pretty reasonable entry point to modern for some more casual players um just because it's it's sort of like playing burn but it's not burn it's different uh you're still instead of you're instead of counting the 20 you're counting the 60 but your spells are bigger um and they might be able to import some of their casual cards over like oh i've been playing like kitchen table playing mill at home and then i started going to play fnm at standard and it turns out i can play modern with like half of my deck my casual deck like i'll have to buy there these five dollar glimpse unthinkable so i don't know you could see people kind of roll over into that deck would put, certainly put pressure on like hadron crab and archive trap stuff like that um so it's also, just it, interesting it's also nice for them that they have at least the option whether main or sideboard to run fatal pushes so that they can mm -hmm. they can head off some of the early aggression that used to cause problems for that deck because it just didn't have a good uh answer um, and of course they have access to things like, uh, uh, engineered explosives in case they need to get rid of nasty permanence in the one to two mana range. Yeah. I distinctly remember playing Esper, um, 
And I think half of the reason was for Path to Exile. So uh, if you can get rid of, if you can cut the white and go back to blue-black and still be able to answer Tarmogoyfs, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So next, on, right. next on our list, we have extra planar lens uh, masterpieces, the card I was targeting at GP Toronto, uh, moving from, in theory, 34 to 100. I don't think either of us believes that this is a $100 card. Uh, that's just like the price of the what, couple of copies that are listed on TCG right now. Um, I suspect it what, settles in, say, the 50 to $60 range. Yeah, I think 60 is probably reasonable, about a double up from where it was, um, you know, for roughly a year or so. You know, if you look at five years down the road, it could be a $100 card, but we're a ways away from that. Yeah. Uh, next on the list, we have Unified Will from Return of the Eldrazi. The foil's moving from 10 to $30. There are a couple of different decks in Modern that have been running this um, uh, against decks that don't have a lot of creatures. Um, so against a deck like Tron, if you've got an early Death Shadow, uh and like a Delver or a Tarmogoyf or whatever, and you're kind of low-slung, aggressive, hyper-aggressive uh, build, you may be able to counter something for one and a blue um, with very few restrictions. Right, right. Yep, yep. I don't know why it would jump again now after having moved a while ago. It was probably just one copy was listed or, you know, and it got bought out. But um, next up is Coastal Piracy. Uh, I think we talked about this maybe last week. Um, foils and non-foils. The, the non-foils jumped from a dollar to three dollars. Um, there's the eighth edition and, and McKinian Masks floating uh, copy floating around. Again, Locust God, we talked about that earlier. That's a real fun one with Locust God. It's not like an infinite combo or anything, but it's just... Uh, it's very cute how all that works. It turns all your creatures into amphibians, which means they copy themselves after they deal damage. So pretty amusing. Um, in the same vein, our next card is Magus of the Wheel from Commander 2015. This is the um, carries on in the Magus uh, tradition that was established back in like Planar Chaos. It's it's Wheel of Fate on or Wheel of Fortune, Wheel of Fortune on a uh, on a creature. Um, so again, Locust God. That guy jumped from like five dollars up to eighteen. Um, because, uh, again, those decks want a lot of those effects. Yep, makes sense. I, I should actually, I forgot to mention that for Unified Will, Merfolk usually runs a couple copies in the sideboard, and Merfolk players tend to hold on to that deck for a while and foil it out. Um, it's one of the more. Oh. So there's also that uh, demand profile. Um, the next card on our list is Startled Awake, which is the aforementioned uh, Mythic from Shadows over Innistrad. Um, this is the one that turns into a cre- flips and turns into a creature, and then you get to bring it back from the graveyard and use it all over again if you can, you've got enough time and mana. Um, foils moved from well, this is the regular edition, I think, moved from 250 to 875 for a 250 percent gain. Um, I think it's going to have trouble holding that position given how shallow the actual standard usage is likely to be. So I think you definitely want to be exiting on that one as well. Uh, agreed. Agreed. It, it's very rare that we have cards on this list that we don't think you should be exiting on. <laughs> um, next up is a Ketra's Monument. This is the white, the well, not white, the monument from Hour of Devastation um, that makes white creatures cost one less and puts a 1-1 one, one into play every time you cast one. Um, the foil copies went from $1.50 to $8.50. The deck has been doing pretty well in standard. I think the reason that we saw this move in modern, actually, was... I mean, it's been good in, in standard, but that doesn't usually move foil prices quite as much. But I heard... I think it was Conley, but it could have been somebody else, was playing this in modern with... Um, oh, God, what is it called? It's uh, White Mane Lion, I think. It's a two mana flash, two, two, that when it comes into play, you make a one, one. So, no, no, and no. you have to, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. It's a, 
The two mana flash, 2-2. Two, two. When it comes into play, you have to return a creature to your hand. So what you do is with a catcher's monument, you pay one to cast it. You get a 1-1, one, one, and then when the lion comes into play, you return it to your hand. So it's one mana, make a 1-1. One, one. Um, so you just, you know, at the end of turn, you you dump all of your mana into it, and you make three or four one ones, and then you can just keep doing that. And it also has some additional edges, too. You know, you can save other creatures from removal type of thing with it, which is what its intended purpose was. Um, so, you know, I think that's probably where the foil demand is coming from on that one there's so many different ways that this card was underestimated up front and i think that there this will not be the last brew um they're probably a lot of them are likely to stay pretty fringe but with play in both uh modern and standard i'm not surprised to see movement um the, this was the foils moving from a dollar 50 to 850 for 450 percent plus gain um if you were holding those i think you can safely get out of that given that this is an uncommon and not a rare and packs are still being opened um, all summer so uh, even if it's all modern play uh, i think foil uncommons you know anywhere close to ten dollars are still probably a sell yep agreed what's next tolarian wins also a locust god card the foils from seventh edition moving from 775 to 45 in theory who knows if anybody can sell any at that price um, but that's almost a 500 percent gain if you actually manage to pull it off Keep in mind that seventh foils are, are already kind of one of the uh, the premier targets for foil collectors um, and are very hard to come by. They are black bordered core set foils um, and uh, are often coveted. This isn't uh, one of the cards that would have been a big deal up until the point where suddenly it's got some increased EDH demand. Um, again, I would be so happy to sell one of those at $40 plus. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, next on our list is Wartax uh, from, uh, I think it's Mercadian Masks again. Uh, went for, Foils went from like 250 to 25 apparently, um, although I don't think the market price has moved nearly that much. As best as I can tell, this is just very low supply, and with Solemnity out there, people are playing kind of like playing more enchantment based decks because Solemnity pairs so well with um, like the Cree of Silence and Forest Bubble and that type of stuff. Uh, Replenish, Academy Rector, it's pushing people to play in enchantments, which means um, that a propaganda style effects are popular. So I'm assuming that's where that comes from. Um, but in any case, you know, I would sell, if you've got them, I would sell them for whatever you can get because I would not expect us to hold that price. Again, I bought two copies of this foil on the floor at $3.25. So Ooh, very nice. I would be. Let happy. me know what you sell them for. Yeah, I'm going to post them on eBay today. We'll see if they move at, say, $18.88 or something. Okay. Uh, our next card is Boon Weaver Giant from M15. Foil started at $0.50 cents and is showing at $7.50, although that also sounds uh, pretty unlikely to be a real price. Market price, price on foils is a dollar at the moment, but there's only one copy available at eight dollar shipped this one uh searches for an aura card and attaches it to boon weaver giant now i assumed this had something to do with solemnity again because it searches for enchantments but this gets auras specifically so do you know something here that i'm missing i have no idea what the deal is here um it could just be people poking around looking at enchantment based cards uh i'm just checking on edh dot rack to see where boon weaver is typically played yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I figured, but I, I, I didn't know. So, sure, whatever. Um, it is kind of cool. I mean, you can get like a Eldrazi conscription with it, that type of thing. Certainly can do a lot of work for you uh, with that type of card. Um, is it a 4-4? Four, four? Yes. Yes, it's a 4-4. Four, four. And it was... Why? What set was it in? M15? 
M15, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, M15. I mean, seven four fours for seven better have a pretty big impact when they come in. According to EDA shot rack, there's only there's less than a thousand decks using it. Uh, a lot of that demand profile seems to come from Carador and Bruna. Um, I'm not really seeing this one. I and it, but it's interesting that M15 foils uh, have been drying up. One of the other ones that didn't make it onto our list here. Uh, but that I picked up from Origins um, at about $8 a foil that are supposedly worth 20 to 30 are the Alahemrit's Archive foils. That was the uh, Mythic foils from Origins. Um, and I've also noticed movement on Sword of the Animist out of that set. Um, so it's not taking very long for some of these EDH cards to mature these days. No, that wouldn't seem that way. And, you know, we talked to some vendors on the floor this weekend who uh, reported that Commander has certainly been there driving format in terms of sales uh for for a while now which is something you and i have been on the same page as as well so you know we're definitely seeing a real shift in magic markets um over the last several years towards that format uh okay let's move on to segment two our cards we we still have our biggest mover of the week i i I, you're right i forgot about that well why don't you go ahead and talk about it because uh you know more about it than i do i think so inexplicably at least at first glance Urza's Bobble, uh, not Mishra's Bobble, Urza's Bobble, um, popped this week. Went from being a 50-cent card to, in theory, a $5 card, so almost a 1,000% gain, depending on who you believe. Uh, this is an Ice Age card, and I think it was also in 5th edition, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or Chronicles or something like that. And it was played in a white-blue-black legacy deck. And that I think was getting streamed last week, that was built around Areo Soratami Ascendant. This is the 1-1 flyer that whenever the fourth spell of a turn is played, you flip it. Uh, one of the uh, Kamigawa block cards that flips over and becomes something else. So if you manage to cast four spells in a turn with this thing out, then you counter the first spell played by each opponent each turn, which is pretty disgusting if you can actually get it going. So they're running this in a deck with Snapcaster Mage, Monastery Mentor, and Gurmag Anglers as the as the creatures. And then Brainstorms, Cabal Therapies, Fatal Push, Gataxian Probe, Ponder, Swords, and Force of Will. So between Swords, Gataxian Probe, Cabal, Flashback, Cabal Therapies, and the Urza's Bobble, uh, as well as a couple copies of Engineered Explosives, you have a bunch of ways to cast kind of like free spells in a turn and flip. Um, I'm unclear why Urza's Bobble is better than Mishra's Bobble here or whether it even matters which one you're using. But I'm going to have to go back and watch some of the videos and figure it out. I wouldn't be surprised if he used Urza's Bobble just because it was cheaper than Mishra's Bobble for essentially the same effect, right? Like it wasn't doing much more with it than just needing that. And and, and, and and then it amusingly spiked the price on the other one that he tried out. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to do a little research on that and get back to you guys. If anybody has any notes on that, feel free to throw them to us on Twitter or in the comments. Well, let's be honest. Neither of us are going to do any research on that. I mean, I'm at least going to pull them out of my binder and try to sell them because they're okay. Sure, they got, yeah. they got bought out real quick. And research. There are basically no copies online, so uh, a whole bunch of bulk uh, people are going to have to go do a bunch of dumpster diving, which is hilarious. Yeah, I don't even know. I, I mean, I don't even know where I would find them in my apartment. Like, they're not in my rare box. So, like, I whatever. I'm not I'm not looking for these. I mean, okay. Let's for guys for, for guys like DJ, right? That have piles and piles of bulk. Ice Age was a wildly overproduced set for those that weren't around in those days. And you know, if there's a card in Ice Age that hasn't popped, been worth picking before, but suddenly is, <laughs> you have a big task ahead of you with your bulk boxes. 
Yep, you sure do. Do not envy that. Oh, I'm going to spend six hours picking through Ice Age bulk so I can sell a couple a couple play sets of a 250 card, whatever. Uh, segment two, cards to watch. Get us started, James. All right, so my first target this week is uh, a pretty soft buy on Gaia's Cradle. Um, this is the Urza's Saga uh, card that is often played in Legacy and Elves decks. Uh, it's a cube card. It's an EDH card for those that can afford it. Um, it's one of the most busted lands ever printed, along with Tolarian Academy, because it gives you a green mana for every creature you have in play. Um, if you ever cubed on Magic Online and you were playing green, it was certainly a card you were happy to have in your deck. Um, these have been sitting in and around 200 for a while now. Uh, we've been sourcing them from Europe in the more like 120 to $140 range here and there, although that price is not always available. Um, and it, and it, because the card is on the reserved list and is unlikely to ever be reprinted, um, it leaves me wondering whether, you know, certainly if you need one to play or you want one for your cube or your EDH deck, I think you just go ahead and buy. It's never going to be lower than 200 again unless the whole hobby collapses. Um, and I think that there's a pretty good chance that over a year or two, this could end up being a $300 card. You know, there is are very few cards in EDH that are as iconic and, and powerful um, than Gaia's Cradle. It's just a ludicrous card especially when you start pairing it with effects to untap lands which green has no shortage of um so you can tap the thing for seven eight mana and then you know use a voyaging satyr to untap it and do it again i mean it's just completely silly um then you add in stuff like seedborn muse and it's just you are generating 30 times more mana than your opponents combined it's such a good card you're definitely bumping up against the uh sort of the limit of of how much these EDH cards can realistically cost, I think. Um, so, you know, how much is the average, how much is a commander player going to be willing to pay for a card for their deck uh, before they either just go without it or, um, you know, use a, a counterfeit proxy type of thing. Uh, but that said, I, I don't know, we don't know where that ceiling is yet. Um, and I, I believe that it's over $200. You know, we're really seeing in, in EDH sort of the hybrid of the collector slash player. You know, the guys who are playing standard and modern every week aren't usually really collectors, right? They're there to really play magic. But the guys playing EDH, um, you know, people like myself and, and a lot of my peers who are like, we may have been grinders at one point, but we've kind of moved away from that. But we still like playing magic. We like having a cool collection and it still means a lot to us. Uh, and we don't feel bad about getting cool commander cards. So there's still definitely plenty of demand for Gaia's Cradles um, and, and spending a lot of money on a, on a cool card for your deck. So the buy-in is high, uh, but I don't think $300 is an unreasonable price for these types of cards. And the interesting thing is like on TCG... Um, the lowest current price near mint copy is 220 so it's not even like you can get it for 200 there. And there's a bunch of 240s, 250s up into the 280 range. On eBay, it's a little cheaper, so there's there's a poten some potential arbitrage there. And if you're buying from somebody on a Facebook group or on Twitter, you might be able to get the like 15% no-platform discount and get down into that $200 range and then sit on that for a while, play with it if you want to. Um, it just feels like you know people were running around telling people to buy underground seas. I'd rather be buying Guy's Cradle, frankly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, it's one of those cards that I think at the very least, if you don't own a copy, now would be the time to pick one up um, because you're not really going to lose any money and you have a chance of, of doing pretty well on it. And if you see somebody at a local in your local store, local group who's trying to get rid of it, 
um, you know, is willing to make make a deal. Probably uh, probably worth considering so trying I, to grab that. So I should point out that on the flip side, I mentioned this this spec to a contact of mine that was on the floor at GP Toronto that spent like, well, I was spending three thousand for the weekend. This guy spent like twenty six thousand. So he's one of these like, you know, MTG finance sharks that nobody ever hears about um, that runs in silent waters. And he said, nah, there's lots of those sitting around being hoarded. So, you know, take take that for what it's worth, that, you know, vendors may be sitting on a lot more copies of these than are currently visible on the online platforms. Um, you know, take all of that together and, you know, make your own determination. But it's certainly a nice card to have in the collection. Sure, sure. You know, you got to wonder what the stack is that people are sitting on. But I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, it's been ticking up slowly over time. So, Okay. Uh, my first card of the week is Perforos, God of the Forge. Um, looking for, you know, kind of a midterm, maybe a little longer term um, pickup on this one. You can score copies around $13 on Perforos right now. I think there's a pretty real possibility this ends up in the $25 to $30 range. Um, Perforos makes a pretty solid mono red commander, but beyond that, he's good in pretty much any deck that makes red mana in EDH. And if you haven't played against him in commander yet, uh, I would recommend giving it a shot because it is impressive how quickly he determines a game, um, especially if you have anything that can generate tokens. Uh, two damage to each opponent with every creature that comes into play is pretty ridiculous. And I mean, I play this and then I just cast like Hordling Outburst and six everyone. Um, <laughs> and then I activate Cranko and like 10 everyone. And it's just like it does so much so fast. Um, like this is like I said, this is, this is a longer spec. So there are there's still a, a reasonable amount of copies on TCG player, um, but it doesn't take too long before you get up into the $20 range. You know, you're looking at 30 copies maybe. Um, and then there's, of course, copies scattered around online, but I don't see these coming back in the print anytime soon. It's quickly becoming one of the best red cards in Commander. Um, we know that $25 is a really comfortable place to sit for popular Commander cards, stuff like doubling season um, and those types of effects. So I think Peripheral has got some room to grow here. One of the things I love about the spec is I know I've already sold, I bought a bunch of foils when they were at Lowe's close to rotation. They all sold recently. Um, so the demand is definitely there on the card. As you said, the inventory is not particularly deep. No one's opening Theros anymore. Um, we're probably not going to see a reprint till at least Modern Masters 2019. And even then it's not a shoe in um, because they, they, they tend to like to run those as a full cycle and whether or not the rest of the gods are in high enough demand is, is questionable. Um, and, you know, it could be a judge promo at some point, but I don't think it would be a high priority there as well. And there's 9,000 plus decks on EDH that run it. I mean, that's a, that's a much better demand profile than, say, the extra planar lenses that I was targeting this weekend. Yeah, yep. And I'm willing to bet that there are decks that should be running Perforos that aren't on that list. Yeah, I mean, like you said, anytime there's, there's uh, targets... Um, I mean, sorry, decks that have token strategies, it just gets out of control. So you've got Prosh and Krenko and all, all the rest. Um, this is also a card we should be targeting over in Europe because copies over there, given the soft EDH profile that we keep talking about, are, are significantly cheaper. We can get them for closer to 10 or $11 a copy. Ooh, all right. Keep that in my back pocket. Okay, what do you got for us? So the other card... Co- one of the other guys I know in Toronto that's into MDG Finance was running around buying every foil copy of Mir- Mirage Mirror that he could get his hands on. This is a card that Jason Alt mentioned on Twitter the other day um, and other people have been speaking about as just a super flexible artifact in EDH decks that lets you copy kind of like the best thing that's on the table. 
and uh, foils have already been showing significant movement. There aren't a whole lot left uh, that are cheaper than thirteen or fourteen dollars. I think it's probably a, a future twenty-five or thirty-dollar uh, EDH foil. Um, Hour of Devastation is not being opened in tremendous quantity. Uh, not a super pop- super popular set because the EV turns out to be relatively bad on it. Invocations haven't been super popular, so people aren't cracking them for that purpose. And we're in the middle of summer, and summer sets tend to be the least opened of all the sets during the year that are mass-released. Um, all of that leads me to believe that these foils will, will not take very long to appreciate, um, given that the, the ramp uh, and trajectory that they're already on. Okay. Yeah. And you know, Jason was talking on, on Twitter about how much he likes these and how they overperformed. I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but I am willing to believe it. So, um, you know, for these are a little on the pricier side at 14, but the, the, the ceiling is definitely very high, uh, considering, um, how little our devastation may end up getting opened here and how versatile the card is. I, I kind of put them in the same group as cards that were recognized relatively early, as potential EDH specs that have already seen some movement, but might get you know might have enough momentum to get to another price tier. That probably also includes anointed processions that I was picking up in the ten dollar range on the floor, and solemnity foils where where you can get them at a decent deal. Um, all of those are kind of in that same could fall back uh, as more packs are opened, but you know are probably a safe bet to get in earlier rather than later. Yep. Okay, uh, my second card for the week is uh, Hornet Queen, looking specifically at foils. Hornet Queen has two printings, but it was one of them it was Commander, and the other one was like Magic 2015, so there's only one foil printing. Uh, you can currently pick these up at right around $5, maybe a touch over that, but uh, there are not too many copies of this left. Um, again, there's a couple. You know, it's not going to be gone tomorrow, but there's not a tremendous amount. Um, it's fantastic in EDH. It's uh I mean, I feel like it's probably hard to say one of the best green creatures because that is a very competitive field, uh, but still an, an excellent card, uh, does a tremendous job of playing defense and also annoying the hell out of people. Um, looks like about 5,500 decks in uh, standard or in, in, in EDA rec right now, which is pretty reasonable. Um, it does worth pointing out this this tens your opponents with perforos. <laughs> uh, also fantastic to reanimate. Just an excellent rattlesnake with foils at co- foil copies at five dollars. I think this is a really easy double up over the next um, several months or a year, uh, and probably fifteen is not un- unreasonable. Oh, I like this one a lot. There are very few foils in that five dollar range, five to six dollar range. Cleaning them up wouldn't take very much. And they are almost certainly a 10 to $15 card once they're gone. It's also not the kind of card I expect them to re- reprint in a hurry. So again, the kind of thing that could show up anywhere and say probably not in the next year, but maybe the next two to three years. Um, it's a card I think that they will reprint from time to time because it's just a cool card to have in, in various formats. Um, but I, I think you're going to get your exit over 15 would be my guess before that happens. Yeah, if it was, you know, if the commander decks weren't uh tribal this year i would kind of suspect that it would be a a place to put it but they are and it doesn't appear to be hornets or bees on the list for tribe so uh it's probably most likely going to dodge that not necessarily um and i you know it doesn't seem like it really fits into iconic masters or or masters 25 but that's hard to say too we don't know exactly the the place they're going with it um so, you know, but even if it shows up in Commander, we're talking about the foils here. So you basically just have to dodge the two master sets, which in even still, I don't think like ruins your out. It just delays it. So my 
final pick this week is one of the remaining masterpieces that hasn't popped very hard yet um, that is almost certainly likely to get cleaned up uh, because I think that all of the good ones are probably like 60% of the total masterpieces are going to end up targeted and cleaned out in the next little while. Um, and what I like about Arcbound Ravager is A, it's from Aether Revolt, which is, those inventions are going to be um, significantly more rare than the ones from Kaladesh. B, it's in a staple deck in Modern that has some risk of being targeted, you know, Mox Opal being banned or something to make the Modern Pro Tour more interesting next year, um, which would also take care of uh, the Ensnaring Bridge uh, artifact decks. But if it sticks around and it's been very resilient thus far, having survived through Eldrazi Winter and all manner of other attackers... Um, you know, Ravager is a key part of that deck, and it's one of the only decks where you can put multiple inventions in at once because you have access to Ornithopter, you have access to Steel Overseer, um, you have access to Mox Opal, Mox Opal <laughs> and uh, potentially um, some of the other like utility cards, like Engineered Explosives or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it's the most inventiony of all the possible decks. And you can get copies in around $80 still. I think this one's going to hit $120 to $140 minimum. Um, there's really only a double handful, triple handful of these left on TCG. Call it another 40 or 50 copies to be mopped up around the rest of the North American internet. And then, you know, it posts up in the in that, like, $100 plus range. Yep. I mean, we already know uh, that these masterpieces are all moving. It's only really a matter of time. Um Arcbound Ravager certainly seems like one of the most playable ones that we have not seen pop yet. So yeah, I think it's kind of a, an, an, an easy choice. All right, fair enough. So let's move on to our third segment of the week. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, the tournament results. Specifically, we're going to look at the uh, SEG uh, Open in Cincinnati um, that uh, was a 250-player standard event. Uh, this was last weekend, yeah? Yep. So, you know, I, I'm still very soft on standard targets. I'm not, I, I, I was talking to dealers all weekend, asking them, um, including guys at Channel Fireball, you know, how much did standard bannings hurt in terms of standard card sales? And they said a lot. Um, and was asking people about attendance at various like standard events and FNM and stuff and was getting a lot of head shaking. That leads me to believe that standard is still in repair mode, that standard specs are going to be weaker heading into the fall than they would normally be. Um, not only is it summertime, but we're heading out of a kind of a darker period in the format that probably is close to what we saw with uh, when mono blue and mono black devotion were like the only viable decks in the Theros block. Uh, standard rotation um, and a lot of people just kind of checked out of the format um, and what that means to me is that decks that pop up and suddenly are doing well and feature some new hot cards are going to be have trouble holding new plateaus uh, more so than they would have if the format was doing really well and participation levels were high mm-hmm. yeah I, I guess I, I don't it, it, it's it's been such a such a weak format for so long people really don't care hopefully with the fall you'll see kind of a resurgence because it'll wash the bad taste out of everyone's mouth. Um, that's, I guess, the the best case scenario here for us is that everyone floods back to standard, which which actually could be a boon for people like you and I. You know, if standard, car, if standard is just absolutely dead this summer, um, you know, especially after this Pro Tour and prices really bottom out, uh, that could set up some pretty good spikes for the fall when you have your traditional um, return to magic for a lot of people um, combined with 
uh, an improved standard that they now want to go play. Frankly, this standard actually looks very good right now for the most part. It's just nobody cares anymore. It's sort of like it's finally good, but everyone's so burned they don't give a crap any longer. You know, as for what we saw in the standard, in the standard, it is interesting. There's not too much takeaway here just because um, it's it's such a different standard than what it's going to look like in the fall uh, because we're going to lose so much um, from, you know, we're going to lose Gideon, which is going to change a lot right then and there. Uh, I guess in terms of cards that have popped up, you know, we did see Nicol Bolas perform well. Um, you know, he was in the, the first place deck, although there's only the one copy. Um some torrential gear hulk floating around that what that blue white monument deck is cool but that that won't that can't survive um and that's almost all um which we'll call innistrad block uh the emerge is also leans very heavily on on that set uh although it does have four champion of wits in there um so we, we know that at least that card is is semi-playable uh the energy decks could definitely keep popping up so you know i i guess it's just kind of like scanning standard to see if not necessarily what strategies do well but what cards look like they could they could keep up in the fall one of the cards people have been talking about recently is angel of invention um but i just don't, don't know that there's enough meat on the bone with that kaladesh mythic um despite it doing well recently um to want to go pushing money at it when i've got so so many better options with the masterpieces and now a couple of expeditions and all sorts of stuff for EDH um, that seems much more reliable to me and it's going to be much less less effort. You know, you flip a single hundred dollar card versus a whole bunch of play sets at twelve dollars. You know, what are you doing? You gotta you gotta rethink how you're spending your time. I, I'm not sure. Angel of Invention, really? Do we know why? Because it it won a, a tournament recently um, and it's been doing well online. Because uh, hmm. Angel of Invention with Oketra's Monument, I'm assuming. Uh, can do some nastiness yeah yeah i suppose all right well i i don't have really a lot of other thoughts about this at this point uh the pro tours next weekend so do you want to just move along here well i think it's worth uh, highlighting i already mentioned it but there was only 250 players in that open i had to double check because i thought maybe we were looking at a classic but an open with 250 Ooh, wow yeah i think i missed that that is a very low number usually it's like five six hundred or more right yeah, I'm not sure if that's a function. And Cincinnati is like pretty central. You, you would think it would pull in more. So, I mean, that that's a warning sign for me right there in terms of <laughs> focusing on it too hard on any of these cards. That is kind of funny <laughs> that it was was that bad. 250 players. Uh, okay. I'm Now I'm going back over here and flipping through the standard events on MTG Top 8 to see if I can find what the some of the other ones. The thing is, I'd have to go pretty far back to find standard opens from events that weren't awful because like standard has just been so bad for so long i don't even know what the right number is supposed to be i think end of april atlanta uh was one of the last major standard opens and i suspect that that was much higher i, I think it was somewhere between 600 and 1200 players um so yeah a, a major falling off i don't know what the factors were there whether you know summer versus april uh plays into it but that's a red flag that makes me second guess even spending much more time on the on these cards yeah um now now i'm going back and looking through the modern ones to see what the modern ones pull but these are all classics too where the heck are all the opens oh here we go scg modern open in charlotte had 740 players (laughs) okay modern pulling more than standard is not a place you want to be with magic the gathering now yeah it's fine by me wizards is not gonna be happy about that 
Right. Which is ultimately bad for all of us. We just don't know it right away. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to our topics of the week. All sorts of stuff was, went down in the last seven to 10 days that we should go through. Um, one of the big changes was an organized play announcement. Uh, they got people in, in an uproar because they decided that they were going to start giving out double-sided foil tokens at FNM instead of cards like Fatal Push or Ether Hub. Um, did you have a take on that? Yeah, you know, we talked about this a little bit with uh, with Corbin over on Cartel. Um, th- there's a lot of things going on here. The The first takeaway is that Wizards messaging was absolutely abysmal, uh, as it frequently is. So this whole event could have been actually received much better if they just had thought a little bit more about how it was going to look to everybody. Um, there were good, there ended up being good reasons for why they made the announcement when they did. Um, but it just ends up playing out poorly. Uh, it was released in the morning in Asia, like normal Monday morning time when you would expect that information to show up. But <coughs> excuse me, that meant that it popped up on Sunday afternoon in the States. So it made it look like it was trying to be swept under the rug. Uh, I, I get where they're going with it. Um, I think that trying to push, I, I pushing pushing the competitive players to play on sun, Saturdays uh, instead of Fridays doesn't seem like the worst because you've already trained those players to play on Saturdays, like all the PPTQs and stuff like that. Um, so it, they're just kind of used to having their Saturdays be there for magic. Uh, the flip side of that is now you're trying to run your standard, like your competitive event your competitive standard event on days where all those players are at pptqs or grand prix anyway so it seems like a lot of weeks that event's going to be dead because those players are missing so i kind of wonder if maybe you're supposed to put the casuals on saturday because all the competitive players are off at pptqs um and star city events and gps and uh you know that's when the casual players would have space to breathe i don't know i suspect it has something to do with trying to brand fnm which is like their their banner event that people know about um and keeping that accessible to people but really the the and and i don't believe for a second you know i believe everybody that says that event that quality of the promo doesn't impact the event or it doesn't impact attendance so i'm not worried about like those having been taken away like having taken away the fnm promo is going to is going to crush um, people showing up at standard that i don't think that's going to happen at all I, you know, in all the years that I grind, I grind at FNM every single Friday for like five years and the promo never a single time factored into my decision one way or the other. And not a single person that I know did either. That's all anecdotal, but it just doesn't seem like something that was a big deal. Um, just so much as people wanting a good standard format was much more important to people showing up to FNM than the promo that was getting handed out. Uh, the foil tokens are nifty, um, but not really that big of a deal. What what the the real loss here I think is that it's not that they moved the the promos like the fatal pushes and things like that they got rid of them um, which is unfortunate because it was a good vehicle to add extra copies of some of these high demand uncommons they've been hit or miss for that with them but when they hit like fatal push it's really great that those are out there and available and, and providing some extra copies for people and that's just gone right like they didn't push it to Saturday it's just missing so I'm hoping that they will move those to like the standard showdown or something on Saturday to really try. Um, and and provide a little incentive for people to show up on Saturdays where they're not as used to showing up to Magic as they are uh, on Fridays where we've spent a lot of time, you know, setting that night aside. But overall, I think it's more an issue, uh, again, of of Wizards communication rather than poor decisions. Yeah, I mean, I tried to sidestep most of this debate because I ultimately think it's pointless. If you get up to the 30,000-foot view, you you really want to be talking about the massive opportunities that Wizards is missing in terms of how they manage (laughs) organized play. 
I mean, the, yeah, that's this is not really about like promo this promo that. I I could talk forever about how they're misinterpreting the data that they referenced, but to me, it's really about the fact that it's 2017. Big data is proliferating through every major industry on the planet. The ability to run analytics on that kind of data to uh, better pilot your business is essential. And we have Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast, um, you know, one owning the other. And both of these companies being well known for being like technologically inept. At the Wizards of the Coast level, we have this embarrassing ongoing saga with uh, Magic Online looking like it was built in the late 90s and essentially never receiving a meaningful update in the 21st century. And, you know, we've been promised this thing called Magic Digital Next, but nobody really knows what that means or how it's going to play out. We have no reason to trust that the new talent that they brought in um, at the executive level is going to make uh, the differences or the changes that are necessary to really bring this up to speed. And you have to wonder how much of that is going to be, um, you know, playing into the hands of copycatting, uh, you know, business paradigms from companies like uh, Blizzard with Hearthstone. And, you know, whether they're going to sidestep what the market actually wants to just imitate a bunch of stuff. And the other side of this is how they're managing things, you know, through organized play at the uh, the store level. You know, LGSs are difficult business models. I've heard Ed mentioned several times uh, on Cartel that, um, you know, you should really, if you're planning on getting into running a hobby store, you should really second guess yourself. Um, because even when you do it well, even when you're at the top of your game um, and you're, say, the top 10% of the market, the profit margins are, for the amount of effort you put in are um, as with many small businesses, are dubious at best. Um, you know, I, I have some thoughts on on the models that make that more exciting. Like uh, some of the places in Toronto that are doing best have liquor licenses. They serve food. Um, their revenue streams are manifold, and I think that makes a big difference, especially if you you know refocus your location on adults instead of trying to straddle the adult child line. Um, but fundamentally, organized play is handicapped because it doesn't hasn't embraced big data. So what I'm talking about is, and we'll get into this maybe in a lot more detail on another day, but just picture that every Magic player that participates in an event at an LGS has a DCI number, which is an identifier. That identifier can be linked to all of the purchases that that person makes at the store. Um, that data can remain anonymous. It can be private. It doesn't necessarily need to be the, the name of the person can be encrypted in the database while still capturing the data so that wizards and the LGSs can gain access to um, statistics that will help them predict demand for products, that will help them target um, players to try to promote them to switch formats, try new products, to show up on different days or nights. You can incent that in a whole bunch of different ways. I think that they, they definitely have to have an enhanced incentive program tied into all of this so that um, you know coupons, discounts, uh, free cards, accessories, etc. are all part of that mix. Because when you have a lot of data, you can figure out who is likely to be able to make you more money. You can figure out who's spending 1000 a year that might spend 2000 with the right incentives. And you can do so much more with that. And then you can aggregate that data and you can look at macro trends and you can identify things like standard becoming a problem much earlier. You can move in to fix those problems much faster. You can thereby saving millions of dollars for, for um, the LGSs, for the distributors and for wizards themselves. And all of that not being on the table and not being part of the ongoing series of what I consider to be essentially like fluff announcements 
that don't really bring us into, I mean, it's almost 2020. We're going to have jetpacks soon. And we still don't have any kind of organized play system, um, at, you know, via software that allows stores to um, run more efficiently, make more money and provide a better experience for players. Yeah, it's sort of shocking when you consider uh, how when you really start to think about it, how much could be offered by Wizards for to their players in terms of like, um, you know, for being a loyal customer, here's what we're going to give you. And you don't get you get nothing right. Like every single that you buy, every pack that you buy, every fat pack, every booster box, like all of that could be providing, you know, tracking to player uh, to Wizards, give them some idea of how to how to better position their product and, and make it worth it for the players, too. Right. Like that would be a really good avenue for rolling out NPR promos, um, especially if you you know, for instance, put NPR promos back, but you didn't ship them to people and you had, they had to go pick it up at the store, which got them in the store again. You know, oh, my new NPR promos showed up. I have to go pick it up at the store. I'm going to go grab it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we see so many other industries uh, capitalize on this type of information, you know, and you put it, you put it well for the most part. It's just, it's just yet another way that you're seeing wizards fail to understand how to do business in the 21st century. You know, if it involves a power switch, Wizards is going to do it poorly. Like, I'd love to see a San Diego Comic-Con style special set. Smaller scale, maybe less cards, less, you know, less of a big deal, less of less of a big package distributed at a certain level of NPR. So you could have, you know, the same way that the pros have bronze, silver, gold and platinum level. You could have the same thing at the store level. Um, and that could result in various rewards being triggered that are that are mailed out to the stores on a quarterly basis. And, you know, it's based on your overall purchases and or your overall participation in tournaments. This makes perfect sense because when you have that data, you can figure out what that person's worth to you and you can much easier justify the budget. I think part of the problem here is that a lot of those programs have been looked at internally at Wizards as expense line items and they're not sure what revenue they're generating. And so they look like money pits. And so they keep getting cut back. But if you can link it much more directly to the revenue that will be generated by offering a thing, and then you can test that over time, you can keep micro adjusting that program. You can do what's called A-B testing. You can run a certain program in half the stores in a state, and you can give a slightly modified version of the program to the other half of the stores. And you can see how that changes what how it plays out. You can see that, oh, you know, when we gave this store this thing that cost us 13 cents more per unit... Um, they were able to increase participation in FNM events by 13%. When we did it with the foil double-sided tokens, it fell by 8%. If you're not gathering that kind of data, you've got serious problems. Yeah, it's just, you know, I feel like there's not much else to say here. Wizards is, is dropping the ball yet again. You know, they could be doing much more and they're not. All right, so maybe we'll dive in on that deeper uh, down the road. We should talk a little bit about what happened with Underground Sea uh, this week. Yeah, so part of so the, God, there's so much. Part of uh, part of what happened here um, is they announced the Pro Tour schedule for next year. Uh, the Modern Pro Tour is coming back, so that's pretty awesome. We don't know, so we're getting a Modern Pro Tour and a Team Constructed. Um, so the Modern Pro Tour is pretty straightforward. The the Team Trios or Team Constructed means one player plays Standard, one plays Modern, and one plays Legacy. So Legacy is showing up on the Pro Tour circuit in uh, possibly the first time ever in this iteration of Legacy, I think. Um, but so 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 a lot there, a lot to unpack. The Modern one's pretty cool. I think 
I'm glad to see it come back for sure. Uh, it is my favorite format. The problems that we were worried about before with pros kind of like stagnating modern by breaking it um, have not gone away. Um, hopefully that that won't really come to pass. Um, but we won't really know until we kind of see how it plays out. Uh, I would expect they haven't made any announcements whether or not these are going to keep coming back, but I would expect the modern one to be returning to the Pro Tour circuit, at least for the time being. You know, maybe they'll run a modern Pro Tour for a year or two, and then once they feel like the format's gotten dry, they'll take it off the Pro Tour. I'm not sure. Um, but in any case, we are seeing that come back. That'll be exciting. You will see um, a little more seasonal bump in modern staples uh, when that rolls around than you would have before. We know that, uh, you know, some of that stuff kind of rises ahead of time. Um, and then if there's anything breakout at the pro tour, those jump in a pretty big way. Aaron also made a point of talking about how they have no intention of doing shakeup bands as he calls them. So, uh, I wouldn't worry about that at the time being either the legacy G legacy part component of the pro tour, however, is where, um, things really got kind of kicked off, uh, on Twitter at least. And, and ended up getting under my skin a little bit. We see a legacy part of a pro tour involving legacy. First of all, it's pretty obvious that this is a one-off event. I cannot imagine them making this a um, returning part of the Pro Tour. Remember that next year is their whole 25th anniversary thing, right? Like that's where the Masters 25 set is coming from. Uh, so anything that they do next year, you have to look at uh, through the through the lens of this is a possibly a special one-off type of thing. That's what Masters 25 is. I expect that's what the Team Trios Pro Tour is as well. It's a one-off special for 25th anniversary type of thing. So you can expect a legacy component to come back. Also, their concerns about having a legacy Pro Tour haven't gone anywhere. All of the reasons that that's not really a good idea are still there. Uh, you know, what if High Tide is the best deck in the format? What are they going to do about Candelabras? Like, there's, there's a couple thousand copies of that. Like, if you have your banner marketing event, the huge thing that people are supposed to watch and, and makes them want to go play Magic, and they see Legacy, and then they go, oh, I want to play High Tide. Wait a minute. Candelabras are how much? Dual Lands are how much? Um, Gaius Cradles are how much? Like, like as you're just going to blow people away and they're going to be like, I, why are they showing me this format? Like, it's cool, but like, it's some, so inaccessible. Um, you're really going to be turning off a, the, a lot of the players that the Pro Tour is meant to appeal to. So I really don't like them. I really don't like the idea of Legacy being there in the first place. And then add to this that you're, you're really not going to see, I don't think, that much of a conversion of players to Legacy based on this, based on this one event. Um, because all of the new players who don't know what Legacy is are going to look at the card prices once and be like, forget it. And most of the other players who might want to play Legacy don't need to really see it on the Pro Tour to want to play, I think. Like, I don't think it's going to drive that many people to the format. You might see, excuse me, a small bump on a couple things, um, but I really don't expect it to, to lift legacy in the way that people are expecting. And that's, and so, and this gets to where I was a little chagrined this week as we saw several voices in the community. Oh my God, duels are going to go up. Make sure you jump on them. Underground seas are going to rise, blah, blah, blah. And then you see people responding to that. And, um, you know, one guy's posting screenshots of how he went on eBay and bought like four or five underground seas because he's like specking on them based on this team trios, uh, legacy part of the pro tour. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. When you put words out on the internet and people think that they have a reason to listen to you, uh, they will react to that. And everyone is responsible for their own decisions. But, you know, if you're somebody who's out there producing content and 
positioning yourself as a voice in the in the in the community to listen to, uh, you are responsible for what you put out there and you are encouraging people to spend real money. And I mean, not, not just like money that actually exists instead of play money, but like over thousands of dollars on these types of cards, you need to be, um, responsible with that, with that position. And, you know, sometimes what information comes out of wizards, that there is a very clear uh, decision to be made. When we see that cats are coming as the next precon or the next commander tribe, um, like it's not, it, there's a very clear correlation. Like, yes, cats are going to move. It's okay to say that cats are good buys because like, that's a very clear, um, a very clear, basically, uh, tenable, um, argument to make, but to go, oh, there's going to be legacy on the team trios component of this one pro tour event, which means that, uh, legacy staples are going to rise significantly because of that. You can't say that this is a much softer connection to make. Uh, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's not, it's not guaranteed. Um, and reacting on that is in, in such a confident way, uh, with so little time to kind of consider it and think it through is, is really irresponsible. So I don't know the whole, the whole thing kind of, Left a bad taste in my mouth. I mean, there's a there, and there's more to it, right? Like I was having this debate with Rachel Agnes Baytog, who's obviously you know a, uh, an accomplished legacy player herself and loves her old school formats and our eternal formats, and you know is probably the best player on our writing staff. And you know, she's talking about yeah, wow. like wow. you know, cannot believe you just said that to me. Cannot believe you just said that to me. I am so hurt. Oh, <laughs> uh, if you want to go head to head with Rachel, you should challenge her. I, I think that would be. Uh, could be hard on the ego, brother. The, Listen, I have no, I have no designs to protect my fragile ego. I just want <laughs> it, it padded. So, and you know, she was saying, you know, like it's going to get it, 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 it promotes and shows off legacy, which brings people into the format. I said, listen, it people that play legacy, you know, when we when we talk about legacy dying, we're not talking about the fact that no one's playing it. We're talking about that the community is not growing at nearly the level that a format like EDH is. So from a speculative perspective, the high pre-existing price points of many, the potential spec targets, the lack of support from Wizards overall, the, you know, business motivations that pre- prevent Wizards from focusing on older formats because they sell less cards inherently, all of this contributes to why it shouldn't be where you're trying to push your chips. And if you look at where a lot of the dead money has been in MTG Finance over the last few years, um, you have to look at the and where hoarding has gone wrong. Trust me, there are millions of dollars of dual land sitting in people's binders that they could, they failed to be able to unload at prices beyond what they paid for them. Um, because after some really good gains in the like 2010 to 2014-15 range... Um, on a lot of the especially blue dual lands, most of that stuff is stalled out. And, you know, that's notwithstanding the fact that SCG decided to test a new plateau sort of suspiciously the day before the announcement was made, moved their underground seas up to 500 bucks. Um, you know, is it going to hold 500 bucks? I have my doubts. Um, I, I would much rather be pushing my money into other avenues. And here's one of the major factors that I was discussing with Rachel. The modern Pro Tour sets off a chain of RTPQs, right? Like uh, RPTQs, um, where people have to qualify playing modern to get onto the modern pro tour. That is not the case with team trios. The team trios events do not have legacy components that people use to qualify. And when the pro tour features a format, it's the qualifiers, not the, the pro tour itself, that drives the price on a lot of the cards. Um, unless some new emergent deck appears, which is much less likely in legacy than it is almost anywhere else. Um, 
you know, it's the qualifier people that have to suddenly go searching for cards and picking up new decks. Since that's not going to be happening with a team trios, even if we get a team trios every year, I don't expect it to have a meaningful impact on the number of legacy sales that take place online. Yeah, it's it's if if you're if you're looking at how this could impact people playing Legacy, where it would come from is people seeing Legacy, going, "Oh, that's cool. I want to play Legacy," and then deciding to buy cards. Uh, but the only place they can play is at their local store, right? Like it's not like there are bigger, larger events that they're taking place, and it's still only going to be at the local level and like Star City, like classics type of thing. But keep in mind too that Legacy is already being played on camera at Star City events, like the the there's there's no middle ground it's you watch it on camera and then you play it at your local store and there's no pathway and watching it watching people play legacy is already happening at star city events it's not it's not new it is a bigger stage i will give you that but i don't think and it'll be cool the first time to see uh, pros play it although i guarantee you that uh you will hate it if they do it every you would hate it if they do it every year first of all you get sick of watching brainstorms and second of all your precious little legacy format will be cracked by pros because they've never really tried you've never had the the full force of a pro tour full of pros trying to solve legacy which is the only reason that it has the versatility that it does uh that little caveat that exists for modern completely exists for legacy so it's just yeah, yeah it's, it's not going to move the bodies into the format that that people seem to want it to i'm not sure i 100 agree with that statement i think legacy is has so much diversity and power um and a lot of the factors in the format are known entities. Uh, and I think it's very difficult to crack the nut in terms of, say, introducing a new deck. I think that you can have tech. You know, the introduction of Leovold Emissary of Trest was important tech and legacy in, in recent times. The, uh, the neutering of miracles shifts the format and opens up new deck avenues. Those kind of changes can still take place. But it is a much more static format than, say, modern or, or standard is going to be standard because it rotates all the time. Modern because many more, uh, significantly more cards that are printed in any given year are going to be playable in modern than in a format of the power level of legacy. Um, so, I mean, all of this plays into me, you know, not feeling great about going in on underground seas, um, not feeling great about targeting legacy cards in general. You know, my my recommendation about Guy's Cradle notwithstanding, it's not hinged on a, a bunch of increased legacy play. I, I like that card because it's got legs and EDH and cube um, and because I think it's iconic and I think players, there's a lot of people that would like to own it whether or not they're going to play it. Um, but duels blue duels i still don't think it's where you want to be you can wait and see how that plays out and see if all the buy lists end up inching up if you're holding duels this might be a solid exit point for you so you can move into something else more exciting right and keep in mind too that uh you know you may be even if blue duels and duels and whatever are going to rise in price, uh, it's going to pale in comparison to the gains you can get in so many other places. So you could buy Underground Seas at $300, and then by the time trio Team Trios rolls around next year, let's say they're worth you know 400 or whatever and you made 25 percent it's like great it took you it took you a year to get 25 percent on this investment like you could do that so much faster on so many other things it's just you know i i finally bit the bullet and sold a lot of my duels um because it, it's just it wasn't worth owning them any longer and i don't think that that decision that i don't think that i was wrong in that decision and and of with all the targets that you had and between the two of us, we talk about dozens, you know, week to week that are in a much better position to make us money. 
I, I'm actually regretting not moving out of my power six months ago. I, I desperately wish that I had I had traded my Misha's Workshop, my Bizarre Baghdad, my Moxes, and, and my Black Lotus into masterpieces. I wish I had hoarded way more masterpieces because then at this point with the double ups that we're getting, I would have traded back out into a better Lotus. You, just because you exit that stuff doesn't mean you're gone for good. You can get out of your unlimited Lotus into something that's going to pop, that's a solid spec, and six or 12 months later, if you, all goes well, um, or even close to well, then you're going to be able to get back into something, you know, that is even more exciting. So, you know, there are plays to be made um, leveraging some of these reserve list cards when the hype engine is rolling that you may want to consider taking advantage of. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and you really hit the nail on the head. It's like, these are commodities. It's not like you can never own them again and you never will own them again. You know, you can sell your stuff and then, you know, do other things with the money and then come back to it later on. It's just, yeah, I don't know. I, I think everyone needs to cool their, uh, cool their jets with what they're expecting out of the team trios here. I really highly doubt the impact is going to be as great as people want it to be. Well, I mean, think about how the coverage is going to work, right? Like usually when I'm covering the pro tour, they usually do something like four to six deck techs over the course of a couple of days. They've got three formats to split those between. So any given formats only going to get, get a, you know, maybe one or two deck techs. And when they're, talking through the coverage and they're covering the teams playing against each other the coverage is only one third legacy if that um and there's no guarantee that the the most exciting aspects of the weekend that they choose to focus on are going to be about legacy so you know i think that the support that that star city pulled when they basically switched legacy for modern was a much more important turning point a couple years back and none of that has changed i mean there there are there are there is a little bit more action for modern and a little less for legacy on the GP circuit with star city games. And now with the pro tour, none of that is likely to move the needle or change the fundamentals of the format in terms of how they impact MTG finance. Right. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's, yep. I agree. Okay. Any other thoughts before we close out for the week? I think it's a wrap. All right. Well, James, where can our listeners find you? You guys can find me on Twitter, as always, at MTG Critic, as well as via, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Okay. And I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price. Uh, you can also find me on the webcast Cartel Aristocrats. And if you like playing Magic, check out Scry.Land. Find Magic in your area. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right, James. Well, I enjoyed our uh, our conversation today and GP Toronto. Uh, finally got to spend some time together. So it was good to see you this week. And I will talk to you uh, next week right ahead of the Pro Tour. You too, brother. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.